They say patience is a virtue, but I can wait as long as you do for a change. Call me insane, but that's my aim. Hello everyone and welcome to Untelevised, the podcast, the podcast where we learn, discuss and share the possibilities for social change and we look at what part we might all play in it. My name is Fiseo and my co-host is Mona. Hi Mona, as always, how are you? As always, I don't really know how to answer that question. Um, I'm okay. Um, I think the... Yeah, the the world seems to be spinning pretty fast at the moment, to be honest, which I guess is because it's um, started spinning again. But, you know, we have a lot of, um, quite a lot of caseloads on our hands at the moment. So I feel like I'm literally dealing with solicitors and social workers and, and all sorts of things all the time at the moment uh, for young people that I guess have actually really been left without a lot of services this past you know year and a bit and maybe in some senses it's good that things are reopening but it means that there's a massive backlog of stuff that are that's finally able to happen and so that all needs to happen basically it was what it feels like right now yeah no i can definitely resonate with the sense of limbo it's interesting isn't it i think as people that sort of work in the space of socials change for want of a better way of putting it um there was a lot of discussion during the pandemic and the lockdowns etc around how would society re-establish itself and a lot of talk about doing things differently but um so far it doesn't so seem that that much has been done differently if anything it seems we've gone back to a faster pace of life which is quite interesting but maybe it's that initial rush after <laughs> deprivation that will slow down again we'll see i guess yeah um, and whether it's actually going faster or whether it just feels faster in comparison to the pace of the last year right i mean yeah, that's that, the other that's thing is the, con- the contrast i'm not sure to be honest um but yeah it, it's um i'm not i i don't like saying this because i feel like you know lockdown was an incredibly difficult time for a lot of people but me personally there is a lot of elements of it i i slightly miss i'm not gonna lie <laughs> um the pace but, of life yeah there was there was something there was definitely something that i felt was happening psychologically that i was yeah that that anyway that i feel had some positives but we'll see we'll see it's early it's early days in terms of uh new old normal yeah and talking about new and old <laughs> we're exploring something new today so we've been looking at democracy for a while now haven't we um we started looking at it in theory what does the theory of democracy mean and then we've applied it in practice to a few different things we've applied it to housing we've applied it to workplaces we've looked at running as a candidate we've looked at the press as a pillar of democracy so we really have um, taken quite a deep dive but we're not done yet <laughs> we want to look at a form of something called deliberative democracy and that thing is a citizen's assembly i heard about this concept a while ago and i actually think our guest oliver mentioned it in the democracy episode as one of the many things he he spoke about um but i only first considered it as sort of like a viable concept or a viable alternative to governing society very recently in the mayoral elections when a candidate stood with it as their main principle and we'll go into that a bit more later but that's 
one of the reasons I've been sort of introduced to the concept, hooked on the principle a little bit since then, and I wanted to share it with everyone. Um, so yeah, today we're going to be exploring a concept called citizens assemblies. Should we jump into the learn and find out what they're all about? Yeah, sounds good. Okay, so what is a citizens assembly? I won't go into it too much now because our guest explores this a lot. It's essentially the whole (laughs) premise of our conversation. But to put it really, really simply, a citizens assembly is a form of something called deliberative democracy. So deliberative democracy is a form of democracy where deliberation is central to the decision making and it places ordinary people, everyday people at the forefront of making political decisions. So in a citizens assembly, a group of randomly selected members of the public reflect on an issue or public concern. So they hear from experts and stakeholders, they ask questions, they deliberate, and they'll be presented with some options that they then discuss and make recommendations that will end up shaping government policy. So the aim of them is to bring together a cross-section of society that can then represent the views of society as a whole and the general population as a whole. Um, They're selected similarly to how we select juries in the legal system in the UK and many other countries around the world. So they'll look at things like age, gender, cultural heritage, ethnicity, education level, sexual orientation, disability, where you live around the country. And they'll be intentional in making sure that it's representative of society so that the decisions that are made are also hopefully reflective of what society as a whole think. Um, And they can be held at a national scale, so like UK-wide or island-wide or... um, uh, (laughs) I'll stop with the examples. (laughs) Or they can be held at a city level or a local level. Um, And they can range from citizens' juries, which will be quite small and have maybe less than 20 people in them. Or they can be citizen summits where there are hundreds and hundreds of people making these decisions. And so... They include four phases. So the first is a listening and learning phase, a little bit like our podcast here, um, but where the group is presented with information from experts and stakeholders in the subject that they're considering. Um, They learn about critical thinking and bias detection. Um, So I guess knowing how to kind of check yourself on any biases you might have when you are coming at a subject Um, before hearing balanced and comprehensive information on the issue, including key terms and backgrounds science. So again, a bit like what we try and do here, actually, um, to define things before you then have to discuss them. Um, And then the group will be presented with a range of opinions and evidence on policy options. And then assembly members can invite and cross-examine additional experts if they still feel that they need that. Then they go into a consultation phase. In addition to kind of having the experts and stakeholders kind of appear in person, any group or individual in society can make a written submission to the citizens' assembly. So I guess they don't have to physically be there. Um, This evidence will be publicly available online, but also summarized and presented to the assembly members. Members will also have the right to request to hear in person from any of these groups. Um, A wide range of perspectives should be present, including contrary perspectives to anything that you're discussing, obviously. Then you go into the deliberation phase. 
assembly members can discuss the evidence and opinions they've heard um, and there's an opportunity for them to like reflect on and discuss the issues and then the facilitator's job because there is a facilitator in this um, in a citizens assembly um, is to ensure that assembly members actively listen to each other and critically assess the different options so obviously ensuring that you know some people aren't shouting much louder than others it's not a popularity contest like everybody's being heard um, and then this phase takes place through a combination of plenary sessions um, and facilitated kind of like small groups specifically to optimize um, everybody's ability to kind of speak and be heard then you reach decision phase. Um, and so assembly members are taking through a step-by-step -step process in order to draft a report on their recommendations. They might even like be able to deliberate like in private um, without facilitators present, um, similar to how like when a jury in a court like leaves the room for a while to deliberate before they come back in with their decision. Um, and then their report will include key recommendations and the degree of support for each of the kind of decisions that they've made. Um, and I guess along with any extra nuance that kind of needs to be added in. Um, they've been able to kind of transform policymaking um, around the world, and that includes in the US, Australia, Belgium, India, Poland, and even here in the UK. Um, one example, like of, you know, like close to us is in Ireland, um, where they've actually been um, able to kind of break political deadlock on issues such as abortion and same-sex marriage. So maybe where like there is deadlock in like parliament, a citizens assembly can come in to kind of have that final like vote, so to speak. One of the criticisms, because we're going to hear a lot about how wonderful they are, um, but one of the potential critiques that might be raised about citizens' assemblies is their cost. Um, now, costs vary significantly, but according to Involve, um, which is a UK-based participation charity, um, a local citizens' assembly of made up of 50 participants for 32 hours is estimated at between 66 and 108 thousand pounds um that's obviously just a random figure and figures are, are, are relative right i mean it would be a lot to pay for stationery and not a lot to pay for a house so it's like you know it's a figure and i guess we need to <laughs> put put that into context in society so i think that needs to sit alongside what it actually costs to run parliaments right and run referendums and you know run all the other things that a society runs and so you know that's maybe one of the things to to consider there but yeah our, our guest um 100% can kind of persuade us against the costs, I think. It's interesting, actually, when you were talking about those four phases, I now think I realise why I like it so much. It is it's like similar podcast. to how we do our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Inadvertently, we've created a citizens' assembly in of podcast two people. <laughs> yeah. No one Our else is allowed to join. <laughs> we have yeah. guests. We, have, we guests. have guests. We have guests. It's a very consultative process. Anyone listening, if you'd like to be part of our citizens' assembly, as always, obviously, be in touch. Yeah, exactly. And on that note, should we jump into our Let's get some consultation. <laughs> yeah, some expert opinion. Perfect. <laughs> Now this week, I'm speaking to Valerie Brown. Now I first heard about Valerie in the 2021 London mayoral elections that took place a few months ago in May. As I was flicking through the candidate booklet, figuring out who I wanted to vote for and how I could, I stumbled across her campaign poster, which had a massive slogan across it that read, the last mayor of London. That immediately stood out to me and intrigued me, so I read on. So Valerie's manifesto was basically that she wanted to take power away from an elected role of mayor and give it to ordinary people through something called citizens' assemblies. 
Her party, the Burning Pink Party, which she co-founded with the founder of Extinction Rebellion, Roger Hallam, describe themselves as being for the people, by the people. And they make statements like, if the language of politicians can't be understood by the average 11-year-old, it's not fit for purpose. Valerie believes that politics should be disruptive. Indeed, just a couple of days after votes were cast in the mayoral election, she was arrested for spraying the Guardian offices in pink paint to hold them to account for breaking their climate pledge. Despite all of this passionate political involvement and political aims, Valerie asserts that she is not a politician, but just an everyday Londoner, mother and grandmother. So based on the fact that she was the person that first inspired me to look into the concept of citizens' assemblies and all of this history and involvement in civic engagement, I literally cannot think of a better person to invite on. Deliberative democracy is very different to, to parliamentary type of democracy um, where you have you know, two parties or three parties who do tend to argue in a very conflictuous way with each other. Um, they, they need to, to score points, they need to be right. It's not a matter of finding the truth or what works best for everybody, but it's about what makes their party look strong or maybe it's, it has to fit in with the policies of your parties. So they're very entrenched in their way of looking at things. And um, also you've got the whole process of, of the fact of their funding and the big business they work with and the media and so on. So it's all very, their decision-making is very influenced by many factors, including simply what is right for their careers or, and so on. Deliberative democracy and citizens' assemblies, what it boils down to is that you have like a, like a big jury service and um, people are chosen by sortition, which means that it's a true representation of the demographics of the, the region, the country, the community, whatever, right? So when you've got a true representation, it means that in a sense, we're all represented. And that's why actually, you know, campaigning to be mayor of London, but offering London a chance to um, to run itself by giving the power to the people was so powerful because of the diversity of London. It means that everybody is represented. So um, the reason I'm such a big fan of um, deliberative democracy is because one is the fact that people are in it to get the best outcome for everybody. It's not a personal thing or a party thing that you have to agree with your party. And parties, the way they fight with each other, you've heard it, is because as someone very rightly said, it's their way of defining themselves. So whatever conservatives say, Labour's will say the opposite pretty well. You know that they will. And whatever Labour say, the conservatives will say the opposite. But what is the truth? What, what is the right decision when you stop fighting with each other and trying to score points? And that's where the people and uh, deliberative democracy gains absolutely way ahead of, of party politics. I'm a massive advocate for conversation and 
I believe that most change starts with conversation and that and then that conversation leads to action. So definitely something that I want to explore a little bit more. And I think it was fascinating what you said about the idea that traditional party politics is essentially built on conflict because it made me even think of the setup of the House of Commons, for example, where they're facing one another almost against one another. <laughs> and the, uh, the idea of having the five-year terms where parties promise a manifesto, so that gives little freedom to sort of veer away from it, like you say, and they stand behind certain things which might not necessarily be the best thing at that time. And I think that's something we should explore more in a minute. Um, so Not to forget that often that manifesto that they begin with when they're, they're um, campaigning, they often don't carry it through. Yes, yes, and that's, that's another big issue. Um, and again, something I want to explore in a minute. But first, um, I first learned about your work specifically through your mayoral election campaign. And I was really interested in your proposal to replace the role um, with citizens' assemblies, um, and yeah. it really stood out amongst the other campaigns. And Untelevised as a platform is based on the principle that everything is political. Whether we choose to engage in politics or not directly, it affects every facet of our lives. Um, yes. So why do you believe that citizen engagement is important, um, enough so that you chose to run on the principle of citizens engaging? It's beyond important, it's absolutely vital that we get true democracy. The voice of the people, the true voice of the people represented in a serious way starts to create answers, solutions to problems because you're asking the people to decide. At the moment, um, what we have once we vote uh, a party in it's just every four or five years. And we then just sit down and get on with the rest of our lives. And we don't really pay that much attention to what they're doing. There are serious issues in the world that have continued to um, degrade society in every way for decades. And also we've got all the problems as well of, you know, the the whole social media thing and the way also the, the, the government and the media are sort of plugged in to each other. So we don't really get to hear the absolute truth. There are too many spins, there are too many media moguls and all these, most of these newspapers are, are rooting for the conservatives because they're, they're conservative um, run papers. And um, this doesn't give people a chance to get a fair, representation of what's going on, to hear all the different arguments, you know. But with deliberative democracy, what you have, as I said, first of all, is that you are entrusting decision-making with people. And as you said, everything is political, everything affects our lives. So why should we not be involved in deciding what is best for all of us? Um, what deliberative democracy does in assemblies is that it puts people in a situation where, because first of all, they get well educated before they begin the discussion with each other. Um, they're also able to bring their own life experiences to the, to the discussion. So, and I think that the close proximity of people listening to people who in a lifetime 
they would normally never get to, to speak to. They don't know anything about their lives. Breaks down barriers all the time. And they suddenly see that we are all human. We're all facing the same problems. And even if somebody is super wealthy and you know doesn't have exactly the same problems as this other person, but they get to see the reality that that person is actually not that different from them. And also that their problems are real, you know, and, and, and as a human being, you know, if you're actually sitting there listening to somebody, you usually get it, right? So a lot of people, when they go through the process of citizens' assemblies, they say that they, they came, they had one idea about the stuff, the, 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 the subject, when they went in, they came back with the out with a different opinion on the whole thing. And that doesn't mean that you've just been, you know, um, brainwashed. What it means is that you got a chance to listen and learn something that you didn't know before. And you were willing to learn to and listen to other people. And that's just something we need to be able to solve the problems of society. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. That's one of the things that intrigues and attracts me to citizens assemblies the most is the notion of the learning and the expertise and i mean indeed untelevised whole slogan is learn discuss share so <laughs> we're big advocates of learning and discussion but especially what i love is the notion of having the dual purpose of educating um on issues but also the acknowledgement that everyday people are actually experts in the things that affect them so from what i understand people don't just listen to experts they also get to share their lived experience and that is recognized as expertise on issues as well because at the end of the day lived experience is learning dual expertise stuff like that in wider society well i think I used to feel, I mean, and I still do, that the educational system is very lacking, um, especially as an African. Um, but I've also learned that, you know, it's the whole thing, but most of it is, as has been, um, very sort of um, British-centric. So it's from a perspective of Britain. They created the educational system that we, we um, go through. I don't expect that, you know, I mean, people, if you're British and that's your education, this is what you'd, you learned at school, of course you're going to reproduce it when you're uh, a teacher or you're in the education system. So it perpetuates itself. But again, going back to assemblies of people making decisions about what needs to be done, um, I think that even within this, you can have, you can use people's assemblies to decide about the curriculum in, in education. Because if you've got a diverse um, group of people, different backgrounds, different expertise, um, they're going to be able to um, bring to the table the kind of education that's needed you know, to give young people a better idea of what the world is really about, not what some factions of society have decided from a long time ago that it's about. I think this will immediately change everything. Um, yes, it's good for young people all to learn um, about politics from a young age, 
But I'm wondering which politics are they going to learn about? Because if it's the same old democratic idea that we've been living with for centuries, which doesn't work, I don't think so. I think that if we're going to really educate young people about um, political world, you have to give them all a much broader spectrum of political thinking. But also I think that young people and, and, and teachers should be given a bit more free reign to, be, to explore more. It's too dictatorial. And you know the teachers, I mean, all they're ever doing is running after their, their you know, trying to catch up with you know, the, the, the set stuff the, that they have to produce for the next day. And it's very draconian and it doesn't give room for exploration. I mean, there are schools coming up in the world now for younger people that are based on a completely different system. It's all about the children learning about the world in a much more open, engaging, and sort of exploratory way. So I know that it's the future of education where young people are not just pumped with information, facts and whatever, but there is a way for them to explore learning and life themselves because you can do it. You're absolutely right there. And I really look forward to exploring that subject in, in a future episode, because like you say, it's not just about teaching certain subjects, it's about how they're taught and what is taught within them. And one of the things that we discovered when we were researching citizens' assemblies that really struck me is that participants aren't only given information and speak to experts, but they also learn and are given training in critical thinking and bias detection, which I think is like a really important and great part of um of being able to absorb information and critically absorb it i mean you spoke about social media and media and our last episode was on the media and one of the interesting things that one of the guests said there was ban nothing but challenge everything she was an mm. advocate that we should have access to all information but we should be taught critical thinking so that we can critically assess everything we're given um, and I think I think that speaks to that notion really well. And that excites me, actually, that the idea that people are actually given that training in how to be critical and to detect bias. I think it speaks to something you said earlier, which was about seeing others' perspectives. And I guess for many people that might not have the opportunity to see that. I mean, I often take for granted that I live in London, which is a very metropolitan place. And I can see people of all walks of life every day nothing really shocks me. <laughs> I feel like I've met most people um, and I was born here. So, you know, I have that mindset from birth, but I take for granted that there are a lot of places in the world, in the UK, not too far away from London where that isn't the case. So I can see how this give, will give people maybe even their first opportunity to properly speak to someone who's different from them. And I think that's really important. What, yeah. what, what else interests me is how decisions are made then democratically within this process. Um, so people hear from experts and then they deliberate. Um, how do they then decide on the issue? Is it consensus decision-making? Is it majority rules? What I happens? think it's like a jury service. You know, they sit down and they will discuss it till they agree. They look at it all, they put, pull it apart until they agree. And, at the, and the reason why people are able to do that as in a jury service is because if you take the time and you look and you listen to people and you explore something really thoroughly, I think the truth lies in there. 
you'll find it. I'm not saying juries are always right. They, they, they get it wrong sometimes. But I think it's a better system by far than uh, party politics, where it feels half the time, really, that people, politicians, when they're in power especially, are doing what they want. It's definitely very interesting coming at an issue with the idea that at some point we want to reach consensus, which, like you say, is very different from traditionally how politics works. And I guess is why we have a majority rule system where the party with the most seats gets into power because then they can sort of overrule most decisions. Whereas if we come at it as we need to reach a consensus every time, I think, like you say, people would approach political decisions very differently because they would have to have a mindset of openness um, in, because they know they have to reach a consensus. But then what happens with those decisions? Is it different with every citizens' assembly? Are they advisory, like a referendum might be, or are they entrenched into law? Um, are they followed with real actions, basically? And do you have any examples of, of things right. that have happened? Yes. Well, obviously, the one most famous cases of uh, citizens' assemblies making the decision for a country was in Ireland um, some years back. And, um, you know, Ireland couldn't decide for a long time about... Um, they were, they were torn, you know, about um, uh, the abortion laws. And, um, and in fact, the government didn't, wasn't really dealing with it because it was too contentious. And so eventually it was brought out in the open. They decided to use the, the um, citizens' assemblies to decide what islands should do about the abortion laws. And um, the citizens decided eventually that they wanted to get rid of the abortion laws and people should be free to choose what they, they want, um, yeah, for their pregnancies and so on. So that's a famous one. Um, and that was binding when the people decided it was binding. And Belgium has an adjunct to its parliament of citizens' assembly, a big citizens' assembly. It's an adjunct to parliament, and that's binding. So what, when the government asks them to deliberate on something, whatever they decide, the government has to carry that through. Germany does a lot with um, citizens' assemblies. Um, it's not completely legally binding, but it seems as if it's been working so well that the German government, um, the, the, the um, Bundestag, is now thinking of making it a legally binding citizens' assembly. So the government takes a directive from the people, which is great. Um, Mongolia, which might sound like a very faraway place, is run completely through citizens' assemblies, deliberative democracy. But, you know, in France, they did a whole big thing about climate, and the citizens, the assemblies came up with, you know, well over a hundred, you know, um, ideas for what could be done to, to, to mitigate the climate crisis. Well, the government only took on, you know, a few of them. They didn't explore all of them. So if it's not binding, then the government can go through the process, but they still do what more or less what they want. They pay lip service to the assemblies, but not completely taking on what they say. That's why my campaign um, was totally advocating that the citizens' decisions would be binding. I would be bound um, by my manifesto to carry out the decisions of the people. And I believe strongly that um, this is what we need to do, is to make citizens' assemblies binding, um, which means that it's gone through a legal process by 
whereby the government ac accepts and recognizes it as, um, in, as binding, integral to government. Another step up is that Citizens' Assemblies replaces the government completely. And uh, it's happened in, you know, in Mongolia. There are countries that are thinking about it. I think it would be great to have this country go that way. So that's interesting, Bali. So you believe that um, citizens' assemblies could be rolled out en masse, so not just for localised um, institutions like or roles like the Mayor of London, but actually nationally it could be used as a system to run the entire country? Totally, yes. When um, democracy was first born in Athens in um, the 7th century, the power was in the hands of the people. That's what democracy was. It was all about deliberative democracy. It was all about citizens' assemblies. It was all about power and decision-making in the hands of the people, not politicians. So, you know, it was done then, it can be done now. Yeah, obviously population has grown a little bit since then. So I understand that there has to be a representative group, which is what I wanted to ask you um, about now, because another thing that I really enjoy, and you can probably tell that you're selling me on the, on the concept of citizens' assemblies, but another thing that I really enjoy is the notion of intentionally being representative. As you've mentioned, our parliament isn't that representative. I think currently it's 90% white, 66% male, 49% are over 50, and when the cabinet was first established of the current government, I think 41% of those people went to a fee-paying school. So yes, it's not very representative of the general population. I know why I think representation is important, but why, why is it important in your opinion? And more importantly, how does it work? So is it similar to a jury service where um, your attendance is mandatory or is it like an opt-in thing? Or how do, they, how do they ensure that people turn up essentially? You know, in a sense, it's the duty of a citizen to take part in um, sorting out the problems and the issues that, you know, are all around us in our everyday lives. Um, I think that citizens' assemblies, one of the things I like about it is that it sort of plugs people into um, politics. If you know this is how your country is run, you know, that you are the people, you the people at some point are called upon to decide on important matters, it, it switches you on, even if you haven't been called, but it changes everything. You don't just sit back and let a government do everything because you, you're aware, your consciousness has changed about the way things run and what your part in it can be. Um, so I think that it's, a, it's definitely um, a more fair system when I went around campaigning, I saw more poverty than I've seen for a long time in London. And I don't believe that if Londoners were in charge of running London and deciding how money should be spent in, for Londoners, that you would see that degree of poverty. People have been left to suffer and um, only a government that is totally removed from people's lives would allow this to be going on.
Yeah, similarly to you, I'm, I'm definitely a massive advocate for civil participation and I believe that everyone should have their say. And, and similarly to you, I actually do think I would go as far as saying I think it's a duty for people to, to do so, but I'm also hyper aware that there are barriers to access. So time, like you say, there's poverty, time, money and other things. They're all privileges, essentially, and they're capacities that many people don't actually have in our society. How, how might Citizens Assembly address, how might they address this and how people might they cater to this? Um, people will be paid um, to do that. Um, also, there will be um, internet um, links so that the, the country at large is also able to take part in the process. So they'll be, be, they'll be feeding through their opinions. Technology gives us that. So somehow all this can be worked into the decision-making. I mean, it's still something because it's not been done before the, on the scale. So it means that it, but there are um, bodies of people who are working on it. There's the Sortition um, Foundation. There are people in, in Germany, it's the DM25. They're working on how citizens' assemblies can either be an adjunct to all governments at every level of, of governance, local to, to the actual parliament, um, or take over um, parliamentary politics and party politics completely. So it, the fact that it's still in a process um, doesn't mean that it should be dismissed because it's new. Um, this system we have wasn't always here. There was a point where somebody came up with the idea and it has taken, and in fact, even in the last um, 40 years, um, the democratic system itself has changed. So for the worse, but it's changed anyway. Exactly what you say. Uh, this, this podcast, one of the main things we do are, is explore possibilities for social change. And our guests over and over again speak about the fact that actually one of the most important things is imagination and imagining that things can be different and then the process of actually exploring what that might look like you don't actually yeah. have to come to that process with all of the answers but through yeah. the exploration that's often when solutions come but you have to begin those conversations so definitely so Valerie I'm sure you can tell that you're slowly convincing me that this is the way to go but as for anything there must be some cons surely what are the downsides? We've mentioned a lot of the positives, but are there any downsides? I can't really see the downside because the people are in charge. When the people are in charge, then I feel that whatever needs tweaking is a discussion that the people can have. Nothing has to be rigid, right? So that this is really important. Um, so it's what the people feel after observing and, and learning about something is the right way for it to go. It can go in that direction. And wherever citizens' assemblies, the people have made decisions about big subjects, the outcome has been phenomenal, really. And often people have referred to it, who took part in it, as transformative and life-changing. These are really big words and big ideas. You know, when I was out campaigning, I had such an incredible experience. Um, you, you know, it might not have translated in, in me getting, you know, some huge percentage of votes, but I can tell you that I was totally restricted 
the campaign lasted, was the whole thing was six or seven weeks, right? From the time we were given the go ahead. We then quickly had to raise the funds because I'm no one and I don't have 20,000, nobody had. We had to quickly, and we managed to do it in like less than a week to raise the 20 grand that was needed to, for me to register officially because now it was open that the, the, the campaign and the election was open and also to get into the booklet, right? And um, we couldn't, we still, this, in spite of all this money you had to pay, you couldn't, you know, you had to stick to all the COVID rules. So we couldn't go um, hire a hall and get local people to come by the hundreds to come and listen to this wonderful message that, that I had, right? couldn't do that. So we were just down to a table placed on a pavement somewhere and as people pass by, just stop and, and just try to talk to them. But 80% of the people that we spoke to loved the campaign. They loved this message. They loved the idea of, of empowering people with decision policy-making and decision-making. They got it. And so in the sense that that was the amount of people I was able to, to speak with. And there were only a handful of us. I mean, there were like three, four people at a time every day going out, right? I think that we did well. I did well. When I asked about the cons and you said you can't really think of any, I think that's a fair analysis because even when I was researching into this and I was trying to find cons, most places didn't actually managed to come up with any, and that's very rare. There's not many theories that have no descendants, but the only real thing that I could find was um, cost. They spoke about the fact that it's quite an expensive and labor intensive process. And like you say, there are many different projects that are seen as worthwhile investing in. So if this was the way we were running our country, I don't see cost as a major barrier necessarily if we decide it's worth it. Um, yes. But I wanted to ask you about your campaign because despite the obvious, like you say, support for it and um, support for the concept, it seems once people know about it, ultimately your campaign wasn't very um, popular. I won't say successful, but it wasn't very popular. You, just for the context of people listening, you placed last in the people that run for candidates for mayor. So I wanted to ask you about why you didn't think your campaign received popular support, but then I think the answer that you gave is really important. And actually a no, couple of episodes, a, a couple, no, because because a couple of episodes, we did a whole episode on running as a candidate. And it was really fascinating, actually, to speak to people who had run as candidates, because I think people have a certain idea of what's involved. And they think, oh, you know, you get lots of money and support and people go out campaigning. But actually, the reality was that one of the people we spoke to, um, Pippa Maslin, said, I ran for the Green Party at, in the local election, the same election you ran in. And actually... I was on my own. I'd got no money. I had to do it around my full-time job. I had to go out to you, spoke a very, very similar experience that you've spoken about. So for you to echo that again, I think just reaffirms um, what goes into some of this and the capacity again, that goes into these things. We don't live in a democratic system. And that's what, why perhaps it was reflected in my low um, ratings percentage. I got no media coverage, virtually nothing, right? Um, I mean, they focused really on um, Sadiq and Sean Bailey and a little bit on um, Sean Berry. The rest they ignored. There were 20 or 21 candidates. We all had to pay the same 20 grand 
to be registered and get into the book. Some people had obviously been, had, were able either because they got money themselves or just knew loads of rich people, but were really spending thousands and thousands on their campaign. I mean, we had nothing. After that 20 grand, I mean, we I've sort of used my own money here and there, everybody just chipping in this and that. We've got some debts because we can't, you know, don't, I can't pay for the, the printing and stuff like that, right? And, um, and, you know, so we had no money for this campaign. But the worst part was that the media didn't give me any coverage, as along with tons of others, even though in a democratic system, it's the London mayoral election. Everybody should have equal representation in the media pretty well, so that the people of London could be in a true democratic system to listen to all the different um, people's stories and, and, and policies and, and manifestos and decide which one was best for them. But they didn't get that. Why should there have been a debate uh, which lasted however long, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, with just those two? Yeah. Um, and Sean, what kind of democratic system is that? I, and I think I that's a really important my, point. My uh, campaign is and was a very radical one. I mean, I understand that the media did not want to put somebody forward in the media whose ultimate aim is to decrease um, the power of, of, of politicians on the people. This is destabilizing the system and they don't want any change. We're not allowed to even have a chance to consider something else. That is what I learned, that there is no democracy. Speaking of radical, I recently watched an interesting video um, featuring Roger Hallam, um, your co-founder of the Burning Pink Party. And he was talking about the three most dangerous ideas and he highlighted success as one of the dangerous ideas and the notion of success being linked to winning and that not being correct. And I think it's interesting because on the one hand, you've spoken there about what is actual real success? Is it the numbers? Is it how many votes I got? Or is it the fact that um, the idea I have has resonated with people and if I only had the platform would reach people? And then on the other hand, you've got Extinction Rebellion, uh, which has garnered massive um, support and success in terms of how it's been able to mobilize people. So I wanted to quickly mention that to you and ask you about the notion of success and what it looks like for you and what it means. I mean, I, people say this all the time and I find it a little bit annoying. They say, that's a great question, but that is a great question. <laughs> yes, what is success for me? Every day was success when I was campaigning. I was at my happiest. After months of sort of, you know, getting involved with actions, obviously we had to do, we did actions to still trying like, like XR do, to wake people up to the fact that we are in an absolute red sign, danger zone. We've gone past it. We need to wake up and start behaving like we're in an emergency. So actions are partly what we do as well. But once I was, but the campaign was theoretical for a long time. But once I was on the streets, and I went on the streets thinking, this is really not going to resonate with people because even the actions don't ignite the kind of um, support that I, I have expected. And many people who do actions feel the same way. They, they do terrible things that, put themselves at so much risk, so much stress. And at the end of it all, because 
We don't see people rising and saying, wow, these people are right. Look how fearless they are. They're absolutely right. People are not en masse doing this. And so you've gone through all that in an action. And it sometimes can knock people for six when they sort of have to have a bit of time to recover because it's a bit, you know, it's, it's, it can be a bit demoralizing as well. But every day I went out on the streets of London, I was completely inspired by the people of London who I didn't expect were so awake to the problems that we're in and to the idea of change and exactly the change that I was proposing. So that for me was a massive success. But I did get all in all over 17,000 votes, or 17,000 votes. There were 11,000 secondary votes, right? So if you imagine, I mean, all those, that 11,000 could have been first votes and many more could have been. The thing is people, when they vote you second, is really like they don't want to take a chance and vote you in first because you, they feel you won't win. And then they would have lost an important vote. So the person who perhaps they felt was less than you, but is a bigger name, they would vote them in. So it doesn't mean that I only got 5,000 or five point whatever. It doesn't even mean that, you know, I came last. I don't see it that way. I think 17,000 people over six weeks, I only campaigned in seven um, boroughs because there wasn't time and there weren't enough of us, right? Not like the Labour Party or whatever, who've got people all in every borough, thousands of people. I didn't have that. And I got that amount of votes, first time. And that's why Many I wanted people. to ask you the question yeah. about success, because I would never put only in front of what you've achieved. It's a massive achievement. And well, yeah. like you say, there were a, a myriad of circumstances that led to where you are, but just being able to, even the fact we're having this conversation and you've ignited a new concept and new knowledge onto so many people, yeah. I think exactly. will resonate far past the election evening. And Absolutely. there are many, many issues with our electoral system that create these barriers as you've identified. Not least if people even understand really what's going on when you go into that poll station, it says second, first. I don't even know how many people might have known. The only reason I understood is because I read through every single page of the booklet to try and understand what was going on. And that's the yeah. only reason I was aware of all the candidates that, I, that were available to vote for. So I think, like you say, there are many, many barriers, you know, but I would never... I came across um, a, a, a man on the streets that's when I was canvassing the last day and, and I said, I'm running for mayor of London. He said, you are? I said, yes. I said, I, um, and, and he, for some reason, he told us that he, he works for the BBC. He's a presenter or a journalist at the BBC. And he hadn't heard of me. And I thought, well, that just says it all, doesn't it? But I just want to say that, you know, I feel that I work with, with people who are extraordinary every single one of them. They're amazing people with so much integrity. I mean, goodness is defined in the people in Burning Pink. They are extraordinary and they're intelligent and they're creative and they care. And we all work round the clock for not one penny. We'd, and it's not, you know, and some of us are struggling to make ends meet. Some have children, some have another job. 
and they've got to try to produce all this stuff constantly, right? And they do it with so much love. And you know who they're loving? They're loving humanity. That's why we do it. And I, I, I don't believe that any of those parties there, I don't believe that all of them could claim such a thing. I think it would be wrong not to ask you, this is not necessarily on the subject of citizens' assemblies, but I think it would be wrong to have Valerie Brown on the podcast and not to ask a quick question on protests. So I know that you're an advocate for the right to protest, Extinction Rebellion, Burning Pink, you all do a lot and use protests as a, a tactic, I guess I could say, quite a lot. And I know that indeed, um, weren't you arrested on, on maybe the night of the election or the, the night afterwards or something like that? Um, yeah. So I yeah. wanted to ask you actually your thoughts on why you think protest is an important part of social change and yeah. especially what your thoughts are on the recent police crime sentencing and courts bill that has now passed through its third reading in the House of Commons. Yeah, well, that's that uh, bill that uh, they're trying to make law is one good reason to get on the streets and, well, do non-violent civil disobedience protests. Um, it's disgusting. It's taken us back into, I don't even know which century, but something a long time ago when people had no voice, no power, and we were virtually slaves. And the people in this country were also virtually enslaved, right? I mean, they had to protest and fight in this country, the poor people, to get proper wages, to be able to own a piece of land without being enslaved to the landowner. You know, people have had to go through all this. But obviously, you know, I take, we all take inspiration from centuries of all the protesters globally. And the most famous ones, obviously, are Martin Luther King, the, the, the civil rights um, movement, the, the, those young people who rode the interstate buses to, to, to um, protest against segregation laws. Um, there are so many people to be inspired by, obviously the suffragettes and, and so on. Um, I think that, the, I, I think it's impossible to get uh, governments and the establishment to change anything. You have to challenge them. And whereas before we used to march, people just to get on the streets and march. I've gone on marches. I've done many, many marches, including the famous war against Iraq, right? The, the Iraq war, where a million people were on the streets of London and around the world as well, I think there were other people. And Tony Blair and his government and, and Bush ignored the whole thing and went to war and started a, an endless war that has put the world in such jeopardy for decades now. I believe that we are also, people are generally so um, distracted and also bombarded by so much media, so much stuff that goes on in their lives all the time. The media don't write about the truth about what's going on in the world. They don't write the truth about the climate crisis. We are in grave, grave danger and people don't know it yet because the government doesn't talk about it. The media, even though they've started and they've only really started to talk about it because the protesters have brought it out so loud and clear 
that they are forced now. Three years ago, they weren't talking about it like this. David Attenborough, the great David Attenborough, whose whole life has been about the beauty and the, 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 how this planet sustains us, did his program even three, two years ago. He still didn't point out the catastrophe, the fact that we're on the edge of, of extinction, right? He couched it in softer words. He's coming out a bit stronger now. Prince Charles said something the other day. We need our government to say it loud and clear. And until they do, we have to protest because the people who must know that it's happening are the ordinary people. Ordinary people have to know. And if we get a little write-up or a little mention because we did, we broke the law, the so-called law, but the, the, the biggest law that is being broken is the law of the right of people to live, the right, the, the law that you do not kill. And what the government is doing is taking millions, billions of people of the next generation, even people we know now, young people, to their death. This is against the law of humanity, of morality, of good sense, of anything. And yet governments around the world are doing this. And we who smash a glass or throw paint somewhere to say, hey, we don't want the world to be destroyed. We don't want young people to face a future that is going to be filled with so much suffering. They'll probably be killing themselves rather than stay alive. So we are the, the criminals, are we? So Valerie, for, for anyone who's listening, who's been inspired by your passion and your dedication to creating and standing for the change that you want to see in this in this world if they're listening and they're feeling a little bit overwhelmed about where to start or what action they can take in their arena because we yeah. always talk about the macro change which are the big changes that we would all like to see and then the micro changes that we can all make in our everyday lives to work towards that big change what would you advise them um, on the subject especially of citizens assemblies if they want to see that as something that happens is there anything that people can do to support that cause? We need systemic change. That means from the roots. Um, the way the world has been run and this country has been run for centuries, um, it's old hat now. It's, it's archaic. It's finished. It doesn't work. Citizens' assemblies, deliberative democracy, giving power to the people has to be the future, is going to be the future. So we at Burning Pink, this is um, one of our main um, um, focus. Um, this is to create assemblies around the country, to get people as candidates in London and all around the country. Because I think that in every region, when a candidate for citizen assemblies gets out there and talks to people, right, they're probably going to get the same response I got on the streets of London, which is that this is absolutely spot on and where we need to be going. So um, we at Burning Pink, we need help. There are only a few of us. And um, if we can get people helping us, working with us, it's completely legal. It's not law-breaking. It's just a, a sort of a political party, you know, advocating a new system and the right system of democracy. So anybody who believes that this is right, please join us. Come and work with us. 
We really, really need help. And we need money as well. So donations would be also absolutely brilliant. If you don't want to do anything and just want to leave it to, to us, um, yeah, donations would be great. But we need the voice of all people. And because everything that we do, we do for you. Capacity and time and money. I think that's what everyone that's fighting for change <laughs> wants. <laughs> so that's great. So Valerie, I'm scared to ask I you this question. A, but it... a personal trainer. I need a personal trainer. I've put on a lot of weight. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and a chef. <laughs> a chef, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would love that as well. Um, so Valerie, I'm a little bit scared to ask you this, but it is my last question. When, if at all, can you ever see a time when your work will no longer be needed? When my work will no longer be needed? I think that as soon as, no, it, it's, look, I'm pretty old, so I think I will work for as long as I've got the energy. Um, but I do hope that in the next five years, I mean, not only do I want to see citizens' assemblies established in this country, even in the, in the next two years, but around the world, in as many countries as possible, in the next few years, because we don't have time to hang about waiting for politicians to play their stupid games with us and with themselves, right? We don't have time. The world is collapsing. The world is in crisis at every level. You know, food shortage, there's water shortage coming our way, poverty, um, housing, all the homeless people, all these things. Even before you started talking about the worst crisis and the mother of all crises, if not the father of all crises, because I have to say that I do feel that um, men have brought us to this terrible place in the world. Men have been at the forefront of decision-making for centuries. And I love men in a way, of course, you know, I married two of them. I've got lovely children and I have many men friends or whatever. But the thing is that it's time that the spirit of woman, our humanity, our instinct to look after people, um, it's certainly worth a try for us to come have our voices heard. And again, deliberative democracy gives women and everybody the chance to express what they need, uh, they see as need, needs to be changed. So as soon as possible is all I've got to say because the world needs it, because it's collapsing. So Mona, I feel like we always have very informed and passionate guests, but I think this is the first time I've felt myself being convinced as the conversation goes along, being convinced of a concept that maybe I didn't know much about and then now feel like I'm an advocate for by the end of the conversation. Um, I'm not sure how you felt listening. What what, what stood out to you today? Yeah, no, I mean, we do, I mean, we do pick them, right? I guess a lot of the time, you know, maybe we kind of already have been quite like aware or, or interested in the yeah, subject, right? Yeah, I mean, this exactly. is definitely new to me as well, even if as a concept, of course, it has draws upon things we can all be familiar with right and I think even in our socialism episode um, with Azar there's obviously discussion about how you would run a socialist society right like on a, on a micro level in like at local level that there would be all these like consultations and that all of this kind of thing so I guess versions of what we're now calling citizens assemblies I feel like right from the get-go kind of what she really like just really brought home was this idea that 
we've kind of normalized that the way our politics are done at the moment is like they're like literally as though they're has to be like battle and there has to be conflict um and that actually like why on earth wouldn't we be moving towards an idea of people listening to each other trying to understand trying to be compassionate trying to understand their similarities as opposed to their differences rather than it being this literally like a you know come on like you know like a sort of schoolboy you know schoolyard like debating society where it's about winning it's about you know top, top trumping or whatever and as she said that it really made me think about our last general election where, um, well, and the years leading up to it, but where one of the biggest critiques kind of leveraged against someone like Corbyn was always this idea of like, well, he's not a leader because if he's not literally swearing in Boris Johnson's face or whatever, then he obviously isn't like strong enough or, you know, like kind of like enough of a leader when actually, you know, what I liked about him and what you know you might feel comes from a sort of like deeper place of leadership is the ability to really like see nuance and and listen and understand the complexity of subjects and even on something like brexit you know he may have been criticized for never coming out and hardcore saying i am for leave or i'm for remain when actually how on earth can you be so hardcore on one line of that fence when it is so damn complicated like as we you know like leave has tons of consequences remain has its consequences and that actually like being able to as a politician be like yeah this might be a bit more nuanced than just like i'm gonna say this one word hit you in the face with it and win this argument and so that was always what struck me throughout that whole process is that you're supposed to apparently be bullish and you're supposed to apparently just win an argument and what she says about like what what the hell like it literally you know yeah it feels like if one of them says one thing the other one has to say the other because we have to have an illusion of debate you're you're right it's it's funny because i don't think until this conversation like you say i had ever identified that that was a choice it felt like the nature of politics was sort of conflict and one versus the other like you've got the left you've got the right you've got like it always seemed like that was a natural part but as you say why it's Mm. actually that is something we have designed and i found that really interesting as well and the idea that citizens assemblies are so much about gaining perspectives of, of others which is something we've spoken about a lot before as well how do you make these decisions on things that might not necessarily affect your life but do affect society as a whole so i don't drive a car and I'm voting based on a policy on roads. So roads affect me differently from someone who does. But if I speak to someone who drives a car, I might gain that perspective that allows me to make that informed decision. Um, Something that's of a similar vein, but really struck me too, is Valerie referenced truth a lot and the idea of reaching truth. Um, And when I looked at the Burning Pink Manifesto, there was a lot of reference to truth in that as well. And I find that interesting because I think we often speak personally about the idea of truth and absolute truths and whether that exists. There's definitely individual truths and what my truth might be and your truth might be, but whether there's that absolute truth, I'm not sure. So I find that idea that if we talk enough, we might reach consensus and where we all feel that there's an absolute truth to a matter, quite an interesting concept actually. 
I, I feel like the, again, the recent years of the two, I guess, biggest things to basically have hit us, like Brexit and then COVID, I don't mean, you know, but just like the most like consuming in terms of our public discourse. That was, again, one of the things that was really stark in that, that people want to be on one side or the other of something, like even something like COVID, you know, you, you know, it feels a bit like you either have to be like, literally like, you know, in the street, evangelically vac- vaccinating people, or you have to think COVID is a, is a complete hoax. You know, there is no kind of, I don't know, in between, right, of being like, oh, I don't think it's a hoax, but I might still question what's in the vaccine or whatever, right? It just feels a bit like people need these tribal camps. And I think with with Brexit, it was the same when actually, but then we get into something where, like, actually there was such little genuine like factual information for people to draw upon to make those decisions, right? And then we got into that whole narrative during Brexit of like, we're tired of experts. And it's like, really though? Like, I mean, we don't need someone to genuinely say to us, like, you know, if, I don't know, if you make a hole in this bucket, the water will pour out, like, don't make a hole in it. Like that could actually be a truth. a meme. Yeah, um, COVID didn't it like trusting the science and listening to the science became like almost an insult (laughs) thrown back at the government like why are you referencing the science and people were making fun of like the graphs that we had to see and on the one hand yes I get it but also like you say there are some facts that we need to base opinions on essentially. Yeah and I guess the difficulty is again because we live in a society that's based on this idea of like upmanship of winning of competition of conflict we don't have trust so then we can't think about facts because we're so worried about who's telling us the facts so it's not necessarily that we don't believe facts exist but we never ever want to assume the person telling us the facts can be trusted and if you even find that science becomes political or yes. you know like then you're like but you're who's telling aware. me yeah where's it like who's done the research can be manipulated because the same statistic can be used in different ways ends, different ways yeah as, as opposed to it being someone just going no 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 I'm, I'm really telling you my political views aside gravity exists if i drop this book it'll fall to the floor <laughs> like just just believe me on that and then decide you might want the book to drop you might not want it to drop that's up to you i'm just telling you it's going to drop and i feel like we've even lost that like you know the water will pour out the bucket you might want a wet floor in which case knock yourself out but it will if you make a hole in it it will pour out so like you know it's a bit like we've even lost i think the ability to have some pillars um of of fact and i think that is that is worrying and i do like her idea that actually maybe if you discussed and discussed and discussed climate change you'd realize that there really is one option that's better than another let's be honest it's not yeah, all subjective. I, def- it's definitely interesting because I think, again, for various reasons, we never give things time. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that actual time and patience will lead to that is really, that's quite exciting, I think. I think that's quite an exciting idea. Mm. I think that if we had time, we would reach truth. This is like yeah. really existential. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very, sorry, guys. I know I always take it to this. <laughs> if just, we had time, we would one day reach truth, but we're all going to die before we reach truth. Yeah. <laughs> I can actually imagine me being the person that gets kicked out of the assembly because I'm making them <laughs> explain everything to me for hours and hours and hours. 32 hours definitely wouldn't be enough no (laughs) but um i mean i think then we're we're sort of in agreement that this seems to be based on our knowledge at this point 
quite a good um, option for us to explore and experiment with. Um, and Valerie even spoke about some of its proven success. So Mongolia, for example, she spoke about having replaced their entire governmental system with citizens' assemblies. I mean, we have to acknowledge that I googled it quickly and Mongolia's population is 3.25 million. <laughs> so only a third of the population of London, for example. And we do have to take that into account. Um, but we have actually seen this concept used in a lot of traditional societies. So as someone of, with African heritage, I know that a lot of African cultures make decisions in this very way and traditionally did make decisions in this very way. So definitely seems like you say, like something that is rooted in a lot of the anti or post capitalist ideas that we've been talking about and very much fits with a lot of the principles like cooperatives and socialism and all of these ideas that we've been discussing. So I'm quite excited to now have a term that um, we can experiment with and, and look more into. And perhaps who knows, in a few years, we might see a few of these elected positions like mayor being replaced with citizens assemblies. So if you guys are as excited as Fizayo is, <laughs> um, then I guess some of the things that you can look at, I mean, there is the Burning Pink Party's actual um, manifesto. There are digital tools for citizens assemblies that you can like look at. And there is something that cre was created by the charity involved called the Citizens Assembly Tracker. Um, this Extin Extinction Rebellion has created a guide to citizens assemblies. And again, you know, regardless of maybe what you think of them politically, they certainly mobilized a lot of people. So I think, you know, there's something, probably something there to learn about, you know, from about movement building at the very least. So, you know, these are some of the examples that we will be posting. Yeah, I think, I think unfortunately, because citizens' assemblies are sort of selected, you can't necessarily join a citizens' assembly or like opt yourself into one. But like Mona said, there is a tracker where you can keep track of where they're taking place around the UK. And what's great is Valerie mentioned that all citizens' assemblies, or most of them at least, are broadcast. So you can watch in and you can, yeah, you can join in digitally or virtually. And we're all used to that now. <laughs> um, and so, for example, that tracker says that at the moment there's one going on in Devon on climate change. So if you were interested, you could tune into that. And I think that's a great way to at least get yourself into the idea. Um, and as Valerie said... Burning Pink Party at the moment seems to be the main advocate for pushing this on a party level. So you can always contact them if you want to know more. You can join them or you can donate to support them if you would like to. But yeah, um, hopefully that's enough share to inspire you this week. <laughs> Enough share. And, and if you just want to join our Citizens Assembly, then obviously you can kind of follow, subscribe, rate and review this podcast so that we can kind of grow and, and, and start taking over the world and all of that. But um, you can, as always, um, follow us at untelevised underscore TV, where you can also DM us. You can see our posts and you can, you know, message us things you'd like featured in the podcast, which, again, people are doing. And we're using those as kind of guides of things to still talk about. Um, you can also email us at talk to televised at gmail.com with the digit two um we would always really like to hear from you um and we are starting to shape some of our episodes based on things that people are saying to us don't know much about this would love to learn more about this particular subject and then we kind of go and look into it essentially um but yeah so i guess for now um we will speak with you um in a couple of weeks time thanks for joining us again guys bye mm -hmm. Me a dreamer, I 
idealistic believer with my head in a cloud. I don't want to come down for my feet. All planning on starting around. 